Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, the Crypto Hipster, Jamil Hassan, where I bring you founders, entrepreneurs, executives, thought leaders, artists, musicians, you name it, all over the world in crypto and blockchain. And today, actually today and the summer season, I am bringing to you a new compilation episode. Last year, from seasons one, two, and three, I brought you the Crypto Hipsters Chronicles. And now, from season four and five, without further ado, I bring you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And what that is, and what it was last year, and what it is this year, it's a compilation. It's a compilation of three or four podcasts together as like a montage. And on a certain topic or area of interest in crypto and blockchain, pulling from my podcasts. And now, as we're heading to the summer of 2023, I bring to you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And there's going to be 22 or 23 or 24 around their episodes. And I look forward to you looking forward to it. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for, for enjoying my podcasts. And this is going to be a summer treat for everybody. So please sit back, enjoy, and uh, yeah, let me know your thoughts. Welcome to Crypto Hipsters Mysticals Episode 8, Solving Challenges with Ushering in a Prosperous New DeFi Future. This episode has three clips from three podcasts. First is Vanessa Pestrito, who is the Director of Partner Programs at Agoric. Second, CryptoFish, who is the co-founder of Trader Joe and JoePegs. And third is Barney Mannerings, who is the co-founder of Vega Protocol. Enjoy. It's interesting, you know, um, and, I, and I think that goes like, I think it goes back to my question about, you know, I've been in crypto for five and a half years and you've been in the VC world, you know, for a while. Um, and so I wanted to find out, you know, uh, what the role of the crypto VC is in today's bear market. Um, how do you see things have changed uh, with, the, with the VC and where we stand today? Yeah, of course. Um... So bear markets are about building 100% because the bull run gets very frothy, it gets very crowded and interesting. Anything could get funded, not really, but it feels that way. Uh, bear markets are wonderful because you can um, identify the parties, the builders, believe in the technology that have the conviction they're willing to dedicate their time because they believe in the bigger opportunity here for the long-term innovation aspects and so back when i was at spring ripple um it was a bear market as well and i loved it because i could just meet such great quality projects and so um i think vcs have a very good opportunity to um 
discern, review, and identify the longer term value projects. I do feel that there might be a bit of, um, you know, some pain right now for some of the bull run investments they may have made. I mean, how could they not? Um, but this has to go back to, you know, what was their thesis or intention for making those investments in the first place? How did that suit the vision for a longer term growth? How did that suit the vision for people who, for these founders that truly uh, wanted to build a larger business versus, this sounds awesome, let me just do this, let me, and I'm not saying everyone's like that, but there's a lot of those um, distractions in a bull run. So the opportunity for VCs is clear. This is the time to build. It's a great time to identify founders who are here for the longer term and how to see how they could fit in the larger ecosystem of their portfolio or future investments, because that's what's part of my background is the ecosystem building for uh, portfolios and then even more so in a crypto network. So they have some early playing cards and bets that they might have in place. And then seeing what those opportunities are and what they're what they have conviction in, in their thesis for the next five years, 10 years uh, is what they have the opportunity and time now to um, determine. And how does and how does the bear market um, help, I guess, bootstrappers with an advantage? I think that there's a couple of things that come to mind. What bootstrappers have as an advantage is, one, if there's fewer people making noise in a lot of our crypto communities, uh, they might be able to get to the right people faster to help them, either unblock them with time, knowledge, possibly funds. Um, and I think that's just a great advantage. Uh, one of our uh, DAP launch partners is an independent developer in um, in the US. And uh, we met him via our bounty program. So we're early with building our developer community. And so we have these public bounties that we post on Gitcoin. And um, what's really special is that we're able to meet and get to know our community via these independent developers who can come build something, add value to, by creating an open source smart contract or an open source component as we call it. And then as he's doing this, he's realized that he has an opportunity to build ADAPT for a greater business that can service uh, assets over IBC and the interchain at large. So that in itself is a great example. Now he can uh, be able to prop himself up and set himself up when there's another boom. Uh, and the same goes for our other partners as well. So that's just one example, but um, I think that's one of the key advantages because due to there being less noise, their voices can be heard. Uh, so I want to talk about DeFi a little. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to stick with NFTs for a second and then go back to DeFi. So I want to find out what the inherent problems in NFT marketplaces are. Also, some of the inherent problems in the DeFi marketplaces. And I mean, how do we solve them? Yeah, um, let's start with NFTs. So ooh, there's a lot of problems. I think, you know, one of the big issues right now is uh, you're seeing this a lot is the um, creator royalty fee. So, you know, NFTs, like their token standard, usually they are ERC721 but they can also be ERC-1155. And neither, neither of these token standards have enforced 
um, royalties, like artist royalties. Uh, artist royalties came later on after exchanges were created and they wanted to, you know, to be loyal to those artists and make sure that whoever buys those NFTs also pay a royalty to the artist who created them. Uh, but the issue is that not every marketplace enforces them. And it becomes hard if you have some marketplaces that enforce royalties and some who don't. Um, logic dictates that, you know, the seller will always try and go to the marketplace that where they can make money, i.e. the ones that have a 0% royalty fee. But it's also not fair to the, to the creator, right? Um, I think royalty fees are an innovation of Web3. Um, you know, one of the beauties of NFTs and this whole royalty um, innovation is that it's really created a, a creator economy. You know, um, previously, like in the Web2 world, if you were an artist or a musician or, you know, a motion or animator, whatever, and you wanted to sell your work, um, it was very hard. You always had to go through a centralized entity. You probably have to give that entity a huge cut of your profits um but in web3 it's like all that is gone right um you know you can sell basically directly to a seller to a buyer sorry um and they can also pay you a royalty fee and i think that's in line with like incentives like because of that we've had we've now seen so many you know artists whether they're teams or individuals you know transition from web2 to web3 they you know, maybe they were selling work previously on like Web2 platforms and now they're moving on to Web3. So I think it's important that we also make sure that, you know, these creators, they get um, the royalties they deserve. Um, you know, our stance on that is that we always will enforce royalty fees, um, even though it might be bad for our business. Uh, we think it's very important that, you know, we still at the end of the day support the creators. Um, so yeah, that's just one problem from the NFT side. I think there's a bunch of other ones. Um, just you know, speaking from experience from operating a marketplace, you know, one thing that we always see is um, people creating like fake projects. Um, you know, either they plagiarize a project that's already existing, um, or you know, or they put out art that's probably like you know, um, sensitive material. Like you had to have running a marketplace is hard because you know there's a spirit of crypto where you should let everything everything be seen but at the same time it's like as a marketplace you have a duty to make sure that certain things are like centered right if someone is stealing someone's work that should not be listening to a marketplace if someone is you know depicting gruesome images of rape and murder for example like that should not be depicted on your marketplace so we always have to go through these things and make sure that, you know, what we show to the user is appropriate. And for DeFi? Um, yeah, DeFi, you know, I would say DeFi in terms of like efficiency, um, specifically about AMMs, I think DeFi itself is pretty broad. Um, you know, you have lending, you have perps and all that kind of stuff in options now. You can go on forever. I'll speak about DEXs specifically because um, that's our, you know, that's our bread and butter. I would say with AMMs, um, we're actually, I think we're pretty efficient now 
um, in terms of like how far can we push the AMM model? You know, concentrated, concentrated liquidity is pretty damn good um, at, you know, executing low slippage trades. What I think we can do better is actually the onboarding side. So DeFi in itself is just very complicated. Um, trying to explain DeFi to, you know, to your auntie or uncle is like very, very hard. Um, you know, people think, oh, yield farming is hard. Well, yield farming is also hard for them to understand, right? I think that's the main sticking point right now. It's like trying to onboard the next million users is going to be hard because it's just not very user-friendly. Um, and I think that's where DeFi falters in comparison to NFTs, for example. Like NFTs are just super simple to understand. Like, you know, I think people, you know, you always have someone, some relative over, you know, family gathering or Christmas dinner table who's like heard of NFTs. They're like, oh, that's be that's like the, the picture that's worth like $1,000, right? How crazy is that? Like they can immediately relate to it. But when it comes to DEXs, AMMs, DeFi, like I think it's a very abstract concept for most people. Um, and just trying to think about how we can onboard those that next million users is, is going to be hard. I think we need a lot of education. Um, you know, we're seeing things that like things like questing, for example, where you incentivize users to actually try the product because um, often you you learn best when you when you do it. Um, I think these are cool ideas. I do think there's going to be more things that we can do to try and incentivize new users to come on to DeFi. I walked my dog yesterday and I ran into a guy who consults hedge funds and he was talking to me about stocks. And I usually don't like listen about stocks because I'm into crypto. Um, but, you know, I've been hearing people say, you know, um, he used the word dividend. And yesterday was the first time that I got it. People look for dividends because they can trust the management, right? Um, and, you know, that's that's a big, that's an important thing. And I never put two and two together before that dividend equals trust. But, um, you know, with, with the spectacular blowups, with the FTX situation this year in El Celsius and whatever, everybody else, right, in CFI, right? And, you know, you're building an app chain. So how can people start to, de to trust decentralized app chains you know, without the fear of being wiped out, you know, and what's the benefit as opposed to CFI? I mean, I, I, the, the first disclaimer I'm going to give is that we're building an app chain. We're very early in that process. And, um, you know, our chain is not yet like even processing trades in, in mainnet. And when it is, it'll be an alpha and you shouldn't trust it. You should assume it's broken and you should, you know, we're actually, you know, putting sort of controls into the system that the community can use to kind of limit the size of their exposure and to make it more difficult to take a large position because we don't think people should just jump in there and, and use it. So you know, the first the first thing is, you know, when it's new, you shouldn't trust it. You should sort of go in cautiously, understand how early this piece of software is or, you know, each thing. Um, but over time, sort of, as I said, you know, people will grow more and more um, confident. You know, look at Uniswap, I would say, you know, the versions of Uniswap that have now been deployed for quite a long time and that appear to continuously process post-transactions post and they don't seem to be exploitable. We understand how they work. Um, you know, we've seen those things happen for a long time now, and I would say we're starting to trust them. Or Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin 
now is trustworthy. When you look back in the history in its first few months and years, there were multiple cases where the Bitcoin community had to get together and quickly paper over something and fix something that was broken and would have been a, a huge problem if someone malicious had found it. So you know, the trust partly comes with time, partly comes with more eyes on it, more money spent, audits being written, um, all of those things. You know, I think, um, but, the, but the great thing about those things is that you know, how do you trust exchanges? You know, after Mt. Gox and after the others, you might think, well, people are going to be more careful now. And then you see, you know, this guy who's uh, friends with the regulators and, you know, appears to be one of the grown-ups in the room. And then look at what happens. So the problem with the exchanges is each new one is just a new person who may be trustworthy and may not, or who may screw up because we're all human. Um, the good thing about these sort of, you know, app chains um, and, and everything else is that, one, the longer it's been live, it doesn't change. You know, the code doesn't suddenly decide that it wants to steal the money. The code doesn't suddenly do something riskier than it's usually used to do. It just carries on being the code. The other thing I would say, you know, app chain specifically is um, you can design these things to reduce the surface area. So, you know, when you look at some of the exploits that have existed in DeFi, for instance, on general purpose chains, some of them relate to flash loans. Now, flash loans shouldn't be a thing because what a flash loan is is a bit of software that basically um, can find out whether or not it runs, and so you can borrow the money for free. You know, you basically get to borrow the money for free, but for zero time. You don't actually ever borrow it. You just call a method on a smart contract, and if the method basically gives you back as much or more money than you started with, and you pay the loan back, then you get the flash loan. And if it doesn't, the whole thing fails. Now. That's not a real product. That's not a thing that should exist in the world. There's no such thing as a loan that exists for zero time other than because this blockchain is programmed in a way to let you do that. Um, an app chain like Vega is kind of like it knows what order books are. It knows what orders are. It knows what trades and positions are. And it just just doesn't have the concept. You can't do you, know, you could do a flash loan to send to our bridge. But at the end of the flash loan, you won't get paid back because the money will be in the bridge. You won't be able to go and uh, you know, use that to trade and then do something weird. So. That's just a small example, but it's an example of how app chains can be designed. You know, constraints are very useful. If you have a system that can only do a small number of things and those things all relate to trading, the probability someone finds something sort of slightly unrelated to trading that they can exploit and uh, and cause a lot of pain is is a bit lower. And, and it's not yeah, it's not a be all and end all, and it won't solve every problem. And there's still many many risks. But I think you know taking an app chain and designing it with a more limited set of features that are specific to a use case does make it easier to reason about and easier to kind of test and prove its security in the long run. I, I just had a flashback to like 2019. And I haven't seen these in a while, but in crypto, we used to have these things called scam wicks, right? Where, you know, the price would hop up and down real quick, right? And I could just see a flash loan like working in opposite and webbing out, webbing you out in like a few seconds. So, you know, and I don't want that to, you know, pe people's thought of decentralized finance because it's more important than you're working with order books. So, but I, I do think that, you know, a lot of institutions are getting into DeFi and um, not as much retail, but why should retail be in there as well as institutions in DeFi? That's a good question. I mean, I think... Um... Retail is an interesting one because, uh, yeah, for a start, the retail environment in different different countries looks very different. Um, you know, for instance, I think it's quite difficult to sort of have retail access to derivatives at all in in the U.S., um, whereas in the U.K. you have things like CFDs and spread betting, 
um, that are pretty commonplace. So yeah, there's always a different kind of different uh, sort of situation for everyone. But in general, I think yeah, the the advantage of of DeFi is that the access is the same for everyone. So you know, if you're if you're retail and you're talking to a, a sort of centralized exchange, you've got to assume there are some big players who either because they do more volume have lower fees, or maybe they have a you know, market making contract with the exchange, or maybe they have some other contract, or maybe the exchange is bailing them out, or whatever else. You know, there's there's kind of a lot of exchanges work with the the industry and the people who pay their fees and give them the money and and that sort of means that you're at a disadvantage potentially if you're retail um you know you might not be maybe the exchange is completely fair and gives the same access to everyone um but in DeFi, you can you can know that's true you know you can know that you get the same access as everyone you can know you're on the same sort of level playing field so i think yeah, that's a good thing and i think as we start to see DeFi platforms you know gain a lot of you know demonstrated proof you know like uniswap i use as an example like i think if i do a do an exchange on uniswap right now i'm probably you know feeling feeling better about that in terms of the probability i still have those coins in a year's time than if i do it on any of the centralized exchanges i mean you sort of look at them all rushing to like prove that they are definitely solvent right now um you know i, I wouldn't want to leave a large amount of money on any of them you know at all for a year, whereas I think with some of these you know, platforms that have been around for a while in DeFi, I think we're in a position now where um, you probably can trust using those platforms uh, at least to a reasonable extent, and, and that'll be more and more true.